good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased and honored to have with us former U.S. Ambassador Winston Lord. Ambassador Lord has held um, a good number of positions in, in the American State Department, including the director of the policy planning staff, ambassador to the People's Republic of China, and the Assistant Secretary of State for Far Eastern Affairs. Today we are speaking about his book, Kissinger on Kissinger, Reflections on Diplomacy, Grand Strategy, and Leadership. Welcome, Ambassador Lord. I'm delighted to join you. Ambassador Lord, what what exactly is the genesis of uh, this book? A few years ago, I ran a series of video panels of key issues in the Nixon administration foreign policy, where Kissinger, of course, was the national security advisor, then secretary of state. Uh, We focused on several key issues, including China, Russia, the Vietnam War, and the Middle East. Uh, And when we got through, I thought it would be a good idea to try to get Henry himself to reflect back almost a half century later on these events, uh, also on his relationship with the president. Uh, and he had never given an oral history, so this was a tough sell, but he agreed to sit down for one. It went so well, and we're only scratching the surface, that uh, we talked him into several more. And this book is a result of the transcripts of those interviews, only lightly cleaned up. I mean, it's amazing, a man in his 90s, looking back half a century, Uh, and coming up with strategic analysis, uh, basic milestones and the events, uh, wonderful personal portraits of leaders, revealing anecdotes, all conversationally and spontaneously. So that's the genesis, and I think the result is a very interesting product. I might add that in this book, we not only discuss those events, but he holds forth on generic issues in foreign policy that are still relevant today, along with some of these issues which are still relevant today. For example, is the need for strategy in foreign policy, the qualities of leadership, how you organize the government for foreign policy, uh, and issues like that. Can you describe for the audience the first time that you met with Secretary Kissinger? Yes, it was February 1969, one month after Nixon was inaugurated and Kissinger took over as his national security advisor. I'd been working in the Pentagon, and my boss was uh, enlisted by Kissinger to serve on the NSC staff and asked me to go with him. So Kissinger wanted to interview me first before hiring me. I went to see him. It was the usual frantic uh, circus in his office. He was about to see the Secretary of the Treasury, He was juggling phone calls and memoranda. He only had about 20 minutes, uh, but it went well. I think he hired me basically on the recommendation uh, of my former boss, but I guess I did sufficiently well in the interview uh, that uh, he hired me. One element that stood out in this conversation was his view that he wanted to hear differing points of view from his staff and have vigorous debates Uh, within uh, the confines of the government, but that if one lost the debate, uh, one had to carry out the policies faithfully, which seemed to me a a fair bargain. How would you describe your initial take on him as a person? 
Well, the initial take uh, remains to this day. Uh, first of all, tremendous uh, presence. Uh, you know, some people, when you meet them in a room, just seem to exude gravitas. Uh, clearly a strategic approach to issues rather than dealing on a tactical level when asked a question, he usually would put it in strategic or historical uh, perspective and proceed from there. Uh, clearly, I find out soon that he didn't tolerate mushy advocacy. Uh, he wanted different points of view. He didn't want yes men or yes women, uh, but uh, he wanted it to be argued logically and effectively and not sentimentally. Uh, in fact, uh, I attracted his attention, among other ways, uh, by writing memoranda uh, early on in my tenure there, uh, questioning or criticizing some of the Nixon and Kissinger policies that were being pursued. And he found them sufficiently compelling so that after a year, uh, he hired me as his special assistant. In the beginning of the book, you make reference to, quote, grand strategy, unquote. What exactly to you and or uh, Secretary Kissinger do you, uh, is meant by that exactly? Yeah, grand strategy really means taking a longer term and a strategic approach as opposed to reacting to events uh, discreetly and dealing only tactically with particular countries or particular problems and trying to put this into a mosaic or a pattern so that you can see how one issue affects another or how you deal with one country uh, affects another country rather than the sort of traditional loyally or tactical approach of most diplomats who just sort of deal with specific problems and also putting issues in a historical context and putting yourself in the shoes of your interlocutor or your adversary. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, in 1969, there were border clashes between the Soviet Union and China, and <clears throat> Nixon and Kissinger had already decided they wanted to try to reach out and establish a new relationship with China. When they saw these border clashes, even though they ostensibly didn't involve the United States, uh, Nixon and Kissinger decided that uh, it would be good to support the weaker against the stronger, in this particular case being China, and it was also clear to them that, that Russia had initiated these clashes. And so they felt that if, without being antagonistic to Moscow, we expressed uh, support for the view that territory shouldn't be taken by one country over another, or sort of signals about our uh, support for the status quo, that this would get the Chinese attention as being a friendly gesture, but also would deter the Soviets but also we wanted better relations with the Soviets and we felt that opening to China would uh, speed up that process uh, as well. So rather than just sort of saying, what do we do about these border clashes, et cetera, and, or laying back, they saw immediately the strategic opportunities. How would you describe your initial impression when you first met with President Nixon? Were you negatively impressed as a lot of people tended to be no, I, I, I was impressed by someone who was extremely uh, thoughtful and well-versed in foreign policy, but also extremely reserved and shy in personal relations. Now, uh, I met with him quite a few times, but always in 
the presence of Kissinger. Uh, I, I don't pretend that I saw the president uh, regularly, uh, but I was on, on most of his trips, uh, including, of course, the ones to China and, and uh, the Soviet Union. And my initial impression held. Uh, I've worked for several presidents of both parties. I'm a flaming centrist, by the way, and believe in bipartisanship. He is by far the most impressive and thoughtful and strategic uh, in foreign policy. And this came through in the conversations that I was involved in or in the memoranda that went back and forth uh, between Nixon uh, and Kissinger. But he also was uh, not good at small talk. Uh, he was certainly friendly enough, but it was tough to warm up to him. I think mostly uh, shyness on his part, not paranoia. At the beginning of the book, you describe at length the setting up of the national security apparatus by President Nixon and Secretary Kissinger, with the assistance and input of uh, former President Eisenhower, who at that time was very ill, and his uh, former staff secretary, General Goodpaster. Isn't it the case, though, that, in fact, uh, the Eisenhower um, prototype of the national security apparatus was not really used by President Nixon and Secretary Kissinger, that in fact the um, machinery for decision-making and foreign policy that they set up was a, a combination of the Eisenhower model and the Kennedy and Johnson model, and that in essence uh, Secretary Kissinger and President Nixon sort of combined the best elements of the two, which they found most comfortable for them. That's a very fair point and a fair summary. Let me uh, elaborate. It was different from the Eisenhower years in the sense that Eisenhower, being a general, was used to having his subordinates thrash things out and then giving him a particular recommendation or an option. And uh, it would come up that way to him. That was strikingly different from the Nixon-Kissinger approach where they wanted to have several options uh, and have them argued coherently and then choose between them. So that was the major difference there. Uh, but what Eisenhower stressed, in which they did adapt uh, from his perspective, was the need for the White House or the NSC to be in charge of the bureaucratic machinery. So uh, on the one hand, Nixon and Kissinger essentially adopted uh, the Kennedy-Johnson apparatus uh, in terms of interdepartmental committees, uh, but they were headed by assistant secretaries of state. Uh, and the major change was to substitute the NSC senior person for a region, for example, uh, in charge of uh, the committees as opposed to the State Department, because Nixon was determined to run foreign policy out of the White House. Uh, and this is because of his great interest in it, but it's a tremendous knowledge about it. He had picked up a great deal as vice president traveling around and also when he was out of office, he traveled all over the world. He thought very uh, strongly and, and, and cons uh, consecutively on foreign policy issues. Uh, and so he was uh, determined to have the White House run the machinery. Uh, and also he suspected the bureaucracy, uh, not quite as much as our current president perhaps, but he, he felt the State Department uh, was unimaginative and maybe had too many liberals in it. So uh, he wanted to control foreign policy uh, from the White House. 
and he chose a strong person, Henry Kissinger, to do this. And of course, Henry did not exactly resist uh, this approach, to say the least. But what was extraordinary about his choice of Kissinger was they, they didn't know each other. I, I don't think they maybe met at one social occasion, but essentially, when Nixon chose Kissinger, uh, it was against the backdrop of Kissinger having worked for Nelson Rockefeller, Nixon's primary opponent, for many years. Uh, furthermore, Kissinger was a Jewish immigrant Harvard intellectual uh, and a moderate Republican. And Nixon was relatively conservative and certainly surrounded by conservatives uh, from a different uh, American background. So it was an extraordinary choice for him to reach out to Kissinger, and he deserves great credit for it. It's a little bit like what he did on the domestic side, where he picked the uh, Democratic Senator Patrick Moynihan to run his domestic policy. Yes, actually, that's a very good uh, comparison. On page 26 of the book, you make reference to the, quote, impenetrable Sino-Soviet alliance, unquote. At that time, January 1969, what was the thinking inside of the um, uh, State Department, the NSC, etc., about the nature of uh, Sino-Soviet relations? In the right. historical literature, um, it's now known that in the 50s and even in the early 60s, there was a great deal of knowledge about the fact that uh, relations between Moscow and uh, Peking or Beijing were not very good, so much so that in the early ni 1963, I believe, President Kennedy made a proposal to then-Soviet uh, uh, leader Nikita Khrushchev that they launch some type of military operation jointly against uh, the PRC for purposes of preventing it from... Um, having nuclear weapons. So what was the um, thinking inside of uh, the government at that time about the nature of uh, Sino-Soviet relations? Yeah. I think it's true that on the whole, despite the exceptions you mentioned, that the conventional wisdom, even in the 60s, was this was a pretty tight alliance. There was considerable evidence to the contrary, but uh, most people felt that even if there were some strains it would be tough to separate uh, them. Now, the signals are getting clearer. Uh, for example, the most clear signal before the Nixon administration came in was in 1968 when the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia and put forward the Brezhnev Doctrine, namely that they stood uh, for communism and with a flag bearer, which, of course, uh, Mao didn't particularly appreciate uh, being shut out of the uh, leadership of the communist bloc. Uh, I would say that both Nixon and Kissinger, as far as I can recall, understood there were tensions there and, in fact, saw the possibilities of making clear that the Moscow should not be the only spokesman for the communist bloc. Uh, <clears throat> now, in this respect, one of the highest priorities of both these gentlemen, independently, because they didn't work together, uh, was to try to get in touch with China and open up relations. In Nixon's case, he wrote an article in Foreign Affairs magazine in 1967, which basically put forth the thesis that China should not be kept out of a world system if you wanted stability. Uh, and in his view, the, the overriding need to open up with China was a more stable international system. 
Kissinger independently thought we should reach out to China, but he was more interested in uh, using that in the triangle with the with the Soviet Union and trying to have better relations with each country than they had with each other. So they converged on this uh, policy, and indeed, on February one, nineteen sixty nine, one week after inauguration, one of Nixon's first memoranda to Kissinger was one saying, "Find out a way to get in touch." Uh, with the Chinese. Now, there were different points of view around Washington about the Sino-Soviet relationship at that time, but one thing that's interesting uh, and important is the courage of the president in this case. Uh, First of all, of course, he was known as a rabid anti-communist and had built his reputation on that, and much of his support base was against any dealings with China and very pro-Taiwan, and he was willing to risk... uh, alienating that base, although having this reputation protected his flank against the left uh, so that an opening to China was very courageous, but at least he had the party trying to go along with him, and then the Democrats uh, sort of favoring this. It was much easier for him than it would have been, say, for Hubert Humphrey, whom he defeated, but still very courageous. But many in the State Department uh, put great priority in trying to improve relations with Moscow, And several of the Soviet experts in the State Department at the time warned Nixon and Kissinger against moving with China. Uh, They already were making a few modest signals like loosening some economic sanctions against China. So these very astute gentlemen saw that uh, Nixon was looking for a way to get in touch with China. And I'm talking about Charles Boland and Tommy Thompson, uh, Foy Kohler, uh, George Kennan. Uh, terrific people, but they felt that if we opened to China, we would ruin relations with Moscow. Uh, Nixon heard them out, uh, but then uh, decided to go ahead anyway, and he was proven right and they were wrong because shortly after we opened with China, uh, our relations with Moscow dramatically improved. Is it not the case, though, that one of the main reasons for the opening to China for President Nixon and Secretary Kissinger uh, was the hope that uh, with greatly improved relations with uh, Beijing that uh, Mao and Cho, Cho and Lai would reciprocate by assisting the United States diplomatically with the resolution of the Vietnam War. Uh, that was part of the rationale. Uh, let me uh, run down the U.S. motives for opening with China. And then the Chinese motives were opening with us uh, and point out that this is one of those rare instances where there was the objectives of both sides were almost fully met. Any successful negotiation, it's got to be a win-win. Otherwise, one side's not going to go along with it. But I think this is extraordinary, the way the strategic objectives of each side were met. On the U.S. side, you're right. We wanted uh, Chinese help to end the Vietnam War. We also wanted Soviet Union's help to do that, although we had no illusions that Hanoi was pretty independent, and even though they were the patrons of Hanoi and supplied arms and so on, uh, there was a history of independence, particularly from China, that was made us cognizant of the fact that by itself, leaning on Hanoi was not going to bring about an agreement. It might make negotiations somewhat Easier. So that was one objective. Another one from the U.S. side uh, was to make sure that Moscow was not the only spokesman 
uh, for the communist bloc, and we're also dealing with some Eastern European countries to sort of loosen that uh, bloc up. Uh, above all, I think the major incentive, though, is one I've touched on, namely that by opening with China, we thought we would get uh, Moscow's attention and improve relations with us. It was not a simplistic, uh, we want to balance the Soviet Union uh, and, and antagonize them. It was we want to balance them, but also get them, get their attention to deal more constructively with us. And I'll go into that later, but that was met as well. We also thought this would bring greater stability in Asia in general. And I think the most uh, cosmic uh, result and objective uh, of this opening from the American side was to show the world that we were not mired in a quagmire in Vietnam so that our diplomacy could not be effective anywhere else, and to show the American people that we were capable of dramatic moves on the world scene and our national interests despite the war. And in fact, we knew that any ending of Vietnam was going to be ambiguous. It was not going to be a World War II parade down Fifth Avenue, and that the morale of Americans had been somewhat sapped by this long war and riots and assassinations, et cetera. Uh, and therefore, if American people could see we had this dramatic opening to one quarter of the world's people, and in this indeed induced the Russians to cooperate more as well, this would not only restore credibility on the world stage, but help to restore the morale of the American people. So those are the main goals on the American side. And each one, I think, was met uh, modest help on Vietnam, and we can get back to that, but certainly some help in inducing Hanoi finally to negotiate. Uh, certainly a speeded up process with Moscow. They had been dragging their feet uh, for two years on a possible summit, which we had offered them. Uh, and I can get into greater detail, but to make a long story short, within days of the announcement of Kissinger's secret trip and the Nixon summit coming up, Moscow finally did agree to a summit, and we moved quickly on in a Berlin agreement and an arms control agreement. Now, the Chinese had their goals, and they were met as well. Uh, I'd say they had two prime objectives. One was, of course, to balance this threatening polar bear, the, the Russians on their northern border. They had these clashes along the border in 1969. They saw the Brezhnev Doctrine and invasion of Czechoslovakia. And they felt that having good relations with the far barbarian, namely us, uh, would help balance off the near barbarian on their border. And this indeed uh, happened. Uh, we did balance the Soviet Union, even while we improved relations with them. Secondly, China wanted to get out of its diplomatic isolation. They were still in the throes of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, they had only one ambassador abroad. Everyone else had been called home. They had relations with very few countries. China calculated that if they opened up with their arch enemy, the United States, the countries hanging back at our request, like Japan and, and Europe, etc., would follow suit and establish relations, which they did. And they also calculated they would get into the United Nations replacing Taiwan, which they also did. So both sides were able to meet their strategic objectives. Uh, in reading the transcripts of um, Nixon, uh, President Nixon and Secretary Kissinger's interaction at the uh, summit in 1972 with uh, Mao and Cho and Lai, 
There is a rather odd sensation that it's um, the Americans uh, who are, in essence, um, in the roles of supplicants vis-à-vis the Chinese, which, of course, in terms of power political realities of the time, was complete opposite of reality. Why did uh, Secretary Kissinger and President Nixon choose to play the roles of, actually, I suppose it's almost a to some extent, like a parody of traditional Chinese thinking of China as the middle kingdom of the world and all other powers as, in essence, satellites of the middle kingdom. Why do they choose to play a role which is at variance with the power realities of the time? Of course, I don't accept all your premise here. And we can get back to this, but when you mentioned the Nixon... Mao Summit, uh, I was privileged to be there secretly until it was revealed in a couple of years that I actually uh, was there publicly. So, And there's a picture of this summit with me included in the book Kissinger on Kissinger, which we're discussing. Uh, Nixon and Kissinger felt that our overwhelming power versus China was self-evident to anybody, including the Chinese. The Chinese attribute great importance to faith. And yes, there were some elements that you suggested in the fact that Nixon went to China rather than the other way around. But politically, as difficult as it was for Nixon to do that, it would have been absolutely impossible to have Mao come to the United States. So that was just practical reality. Um, and you could argue that, uh, you know, he had to call on the chairman early on uh, like, an, uh, like calling on an emperor because the meeting was arranged within an hour of arriving in China. We knew we'd meet with Mao. We didn't know when. But this was a positive act. Mao usually met at the end of uh, meetings that lasted several days to put his stamp of approval by asking to see Nixon right away. Uh, He was telling his people, his cadre, and the world that he approved of this visit. So that set a very positive tone. Furthermore, I would argue that the results show that whatever the trappings that you suggest, uh, the outcome was one of tremendous diplomatic success by the U.S. and by China, for that matter. For example, let's take uh, the key issue of Taiwan, which, of course, had always been the stumbling block uh, in U.S.-China relations. Uh, We recognized Taiwan, uh, Republic of China, as the legitimate uh, spokesperson for for the China, and, of course, the Chinese violently opposed this and said that we could never move forward on any issues until we solve the Taiwan issue. Well, look how far they came on this most sensitive issue for them. They moved from 20 years of insisting that Taiwan be discussed first and only and progress be made first on that to a visit first secretly by Kissinger, then by Nixon, which went well beyond the Taiwan issue. Then in the summit itself, And in the communique that was released, uh, they went from insisting on shifting diplomatic relations for many years and and the primacy of this issue to essentially kicking the can down the road. We had to agree to a vague one-China principle, but we didn't identify which China we were talking about. And we came out of a successful summit meeting the goals that I mentioned uh, with the Chinese agreeing to the following. First, that we would maintain diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Secondly, we would continue to sell arms to Taiwan. 
Thirdly, we continue to have a defense treaty and troops stationed in Taiwan. So this is an extraordinary move by the Chinese. Now, of course, Nixon and Kissinger had to move somewhere, too. It's a two-way street, and they did agree to the one China principle. But they did not agree to any of these other demands. So I would argue that whatever the historical aesthetics about going to the Middle Kingdom, which some of which is true, number one, it was reality in terms of geography and politics. But number two, what counts is the outcome, and I believe the outcome was historic and positive. In retrospect, could not the uh, could not Japan have been handled better in terms of the diplomacy of the opening to China? Absolutely. Uh, you won't find me here saying we were perfect in everything we did, although I do think this opening was quite dramatic. Uh, we kept the Kissinger trip, remember now this is July 1971, uh, which was designed to make sure that it was okay for the president to agree to a visit, because just think of the results if Nixon had gone <clears throat> to China <clears throat> and they embarrassed him, which they could well have done. We had 22 years of mistrust and hostility. It would have been a diplomatic disaster for him and with his domestic audience and around the world, but he was willing to take that leap but only after exploring this through the secret trip. We kept that sec trip secret uh, from all countries uh, and from our American public and Congress uh, for several reasons. Uh, one, if you announce it in advance, then you up the stakes. Everyone stops lobbying, starts lobbying you, whether it's the Congress or our allies or Taiwan and boxing you in. And all of this before you knew whether there was much you could agree with uh, in, Beige in Beijing. So to maintain diplomatic flexibility, we kept the, uh, the trip and the opening secret, including our closest Asian ally, Japan. Uh, <clears throat> and we felt we had to do this for the reasons I mentioned. Now, the result was a shock because we only informed Japan shortly before Nixon announced the secret Kissinger trip in July 71 and did set back relations with Japan. Uh, I think the, what we could have done differently, the, uh, our dilemma was the following. If we were going to inform anybody, it would, be, it would have been Japan, because not only were they crucial in Asia, and it's obvious geographic relevance here and political relevance, but they had been holding back on moving toward China at our request. Uh, so this was a tremendous political sensitivity in Japan. It was a big shock. Uh, I still think the secrecy was justified for the reasons I mentioned. But in retrospect, and I want to make clear, I didn't recommend this at the time. I think what we should have done was send uh, not a highly visible person, but someone like myself or the other Asian expert uh, on the NSC staff, John Holdridge, who was crucial in this opening, to Tokyo in advance to inform the prime minister about the Kissinger trip, or at least to brief him after the trip uh, before the announcement. He then could at least say he knew about it, which would have lessened the shock. Uh, now, the argument against that is that he, in turn, would be boxed in, the prime minister, if he kept it secret from his cabinet. Uh, and if he told his cabinet, particularly given history, there was bound to be leaks in Japan, which would have sabotaged the whole trip. So it was a dilemma. But given the state of the shock, I think we should have taken the risk and informed him uh, in advance of what's ha what was happening. Now, I want to point out 
that Kissinger devoted extreme attention to repairing this relationship the remainder of his tenure in office. And I was with him, and he went to Japan something like 10 times in three years and greatly improved relations uh, uh, in that period. Was it you or was it Ambassador uh, Holdridge who lent their shirt to Secretary Kissinger on the flight from uh, Pakistan to uh, Beijing? That was Holdridge. It should have been me because I'm three or four inches shorter than Holdridge and Kissinger is a couple of inches shorter than me. Uh, the answer, the, the, what you're referring to was on the secret trip in July 71, we were flying from Pakistan on a Pakistani plane uh, to Beijing for the secret negotiations with Zhou Enlai. Uh, Kissinger was in the back of the plane with a few Chinese. Uh, and, of course, he was concerned with uh, the upcoming talks, how we deal with Zhou Enlai, the geopolitical earthquake we were about to unleash. But above all, he was ranting and raving about the fact that his staff assistant had not packed any shirts. And so he thought he was going to look ridiculous in these historic meetings, even though they were secret. Uh, so I told Henry, I said, look, Henry, you haven't even sat down yet with Joe and I uh, for negotiations, and you've already lost your shirt. <laughs> uh, he then borrowed one from Holdridge, who's 6'3", and he went around looking like a penguin. Uh, and furthermore, the shirt had a label which said, Made in Taiwan. <laughs> so that was, a, that was an interesting anecdote. I have to put one other thing in for my own historical greatness on this trip. And Kissinger admits this in his memoirs. You ask people, who was the first American official to go into China after 22 years? We hadn't been in any touch with them since 1949 when the communists took over. Some people would say Nixon, but most people would say Kissinger on that secret trip. But reality is that Winston Lord was the first official into China after 22 years, or the more dramatic because I'm married to a woman from Shanghai, uh, because, for the following reason. We were in this plane with the Pakistani flight attendants and pilots up front, and Kissinger and I and others were sitting with the Chinese in the back of the plane. As the plane got close to the Chinese border, I went to the front of the plane, left Kissinger and the others behind, so that as we crossed into Chinese airspace, I was the first American into China, and I'm very proud of it. Something to be proud of, certainly. Uh, Ambassador Lord, on page 49, uh, Secretary Kissinger states that the, quote, anti-hegemony clause, unquote, in the Shanghai communique meant that, quote, there, could, there would be no Chinese incursions anywhere, unquote. Was in fact that the PRC's reading of that clause, or did that actually, for them, actually the clause meant that the United States would not combine with the Soviet Union vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the PRC? Well, from their standpoint, uh, they would put emphasis on the latter interpretation, and we would put emphasis on both. Uh, but... They're smart people, to say the least, and they recognize what this meant. I, I might quickly digress to say this was part of the Shanghai communique, which was unique in the fact that much of it, and we can get into how it was devised if you wish, but it set out the views of each side unilaterally because we differed in so many issues, which made the communique unique and more credible than the usual come by our agreeing on everything. 
but we wanted to put in some areas of agreement, and the most important was the one you mentioned. Anti-hegemony was couched in general terms, but clearly was a signal to the Soviets who had been uh, fooling around with the Chinese on their border. So the Chinese took great reassurance from this, but we also uh, were clear that this meant nobody, including us or the Chinese or the Russians, should try to uh, seize territory or extend their hegemony. Did not the North Vietnamese uh, Spring Offensive 1972 show how limited the concrete results of the opening China were? It appears from the historical literature that uh, Peking, I'm sorry, Beijing greatly increased its uh, arms shipments to Hanoi in uh, late 1972, early 1973. I'm sorry, late 1971, early 1972. Well, first, remember, there were many results and goals in the opening, and the Vietnam dimension was only one of them. And I, I ticked off earlier four or five others, all of which I think were met. I also said when I was discussing this that we have evidence, and we know that the Chinese did weigh in with Hanoi on the Vietnam negotiations, not in the sense of threatening them or cutting off aid, uh, and they did continue aid, as you mentioned, but in their own self-interest, they wanted this war behind us because it was ideologically inconvenient for them to be opening up with someone who was fighting their neighbors of lips and teeth closeness, which, of course, is nonsense because they had their own differences. And indeed, China invaded Vietnam a few years later. Uh, but they wanted the war over, and they also wanted the U.S. to look credible as a world balancer against the Soviets. And as long as we were dragged down in, in Vietnam, we couldn't be as effective uh, countering the Soviets around the world. So it was in their interest to have this war behind them. But, of course, they weren't about to uh, totally swamp their, their, their client. But what they did do, and this was helpful, but I'm not saying decisive, was to urge the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese, to make a military settlement only with us. That was our position. The Hanoi position, and we can get into this, but for years until we had a breakthrough in October 72, was not only should the U.S. withdraw unilaterally, but we ought to overthrow the Saigon government on our way out, which, of course, we were determined not to do. Uh, they maintained that position uh, for some time, but two elements changed their position. Uh, number one, by October 72, it's clear that Nixon was going to get reelected, and they had to deal with this madman for another four years. And they thought mistakenly that Nixon would be anxious to make a deal before the election to increase his electoral prospects. Uh, Nixon was going to win a landslide over McGovern anyway. He didn't need this, and he was too principled. He told Kissinger, I don't want to deal with respect to the election, I want to deal with respect to American uh, national interests. So Hanoi finally dropped their political demands when they saw the election coming up and the poll numbers. Uh, but secondly, to get back to your point, in April 72, or March 72, Hanoi mounted a major offensive uh, against South Vietnam. And Nixon with great courage, because he was jeopardizing a Moscow summit that was coming up, uh, ordered the mining of Haiphong Harbor, uh, a blockade, increased bombing of Hanoi, uh, to repulse this offensive, and it worked. And uh, a major 
North Vietnamese offensive was defeated, and they saw that we still had the kind of <clears throat> staying power that a military victory was not imminent. So the combination of the sobering up uh, of the failed April offensive and the prospect of Nixon's four more years uh, led Hanoi to change their position. So I'm not saying the Chinese influence, and for that matter, Moscow's influence, because they weighed in with the Vietnamese in the same way, made the breakthrough uh, on the negotiations. These other factors did, but I think it helped. Now, there was an extended discussion uh, at that time in the spring of 1972 before the Moscow summit uh, in Washington um, about perhaps preemptively canceling the summit by the United States rather than having Moscow cancel it without warning. Um, what was uh, Secretary Kissinger's position on that matter? Yes, I sat in on a lot of those uh, deliberations. Uh, I don't think there was, you know, we're talking now 40 years ago, but I don't recall a lot of talk, but of course there might have been separate talk between Kissinger and Nixon about our canceling the summit. Uh, the major preoccupation was the fact that Brezhnev would cancel the summit because he wouldn't want to welcome Nixon while we were bombing his, his neighbors and his friends, not his neighbors, but his friends, uh, the, the North Vietnamese. Uh, Nixon, again, showing his perceptiveness, felt that we could have our cake and eat it, too. That, first of all, he was not about to go to Moscow while Soviet arms were helping kill American and South Vietnamese troops in a major offensive while he was there. Uh, he just wouldn't do it. So he was determined to blunt the North Vietnamese offensive, even if it cost him the summit. But he felt that Brezhnev would not cancel the summit because of Soviet self-interest. Uh, most people thought the summit would be canceled, and I don't want to put words in Kissinger's mouth, but I think he thought it would be as well. I remember riding with Kissinger in a helicopter up to Camp David. We were going up there to discuss with Nixon uh, his speech on this uh, response to the offensive. And we, were, we thought it was the right thing to do, but we were bemoaning the fact that the carefully prepared summit with the prospect of arms control, Berlin, and economic deals was going to go down the tubes. Uh, and therefore, we were surprised, most of us, not Nixon, that the summit went ahead and indeed uh, was very successful. The two words which are perhaps most... Um connected with Secretary Kissinger and the Vietnam negotiations are the words decent interval. Now in the book, uh, Secretary Kissinger discusses at length uh, this particular, I suppose, accusation made by some uh, that in point of fact, that is what Secretary Kissinger and President Nixon wanted, which was a decent interval um, in terms of uh, essence signing a peace deal with the Hanoi and then not caring after six months or a year if uh, the Saigon government um, fell or not. Um, what is um, Secretary Kissinger's response to this accusation? Well, I'm glad you raised that subject. 
it shows that this book, although uh, it's on the whole a friendly interview to make him relax and think about things, you can always get critiques elsewhere, and any oral history is going to be one-sided. But it didn't. We didn't refrain from asking him some tough questions, and this was a crucial one. You're absolutely right. It's the shorthand critique uh, most leveled at Kissinger and Nixon, and it's totally unfair and I would say outrageous as someone who was involved every step of the way, including why we thought this agreement could succeed. Uh, first of all, you've got to remember that even if this phrase was used, you've got to know the context and who you were talking to. Was it the Chinese, the North Vietnamese, uh, fellow Americans, and so on? But I would say the phrase really should be decent opportunity. Here's what I mean. We felt that we had to have an honorable agreement, and Nixon and Kissinger felt that, that would fulfill the sacrifices that had been made and maintain U.S. credibility as an ally. Uh, but we also felt that we couldn't indefinitely uh, defend South Vietnam, that they had to take the major burden over the long run uh, and we had gradually been shifting responsibility through the Vietnamization program so that America shouldn't have to, nor would uh, public opinion allow us to go on forever defending uh, Vietnam. But we felt we had reached a point where we had secured a settlement that left the Saigon government in power uh, and that we were going to provide assistance, and I can give other reasons why we thought this deal, which, by the way, was much better than most critics thought possible, because we preserved the uh, South Vietnamese government, that the political future should be worked out between North and South Vietnam, and that the Vietnamese had a decent opportunity, uh, a realistic opportunity, uh, to determine their own political future uh, with our support. Uh, we felt the agreement could hold up for several reasons. It was not cynical. But we were not naive about Hanoi's possible intentions. But we felt for about four basic reasons uh, this agreement was not only credible, but uh, uh, could last. Number one, if there were minor ceasefire violations, the South Vietnamese had gotten strong enough so they could take care of these. And in fact, for the first few months, that's exactly what happened. Secondly, if there was a major invasion and violation by the North coming into South Vietnam, which occurred a few months later, that despite the weariness and antagonism and divisiveness in American society, that after all the blood and treasure expended, the American body politic would not walk away from the agreement that was blatantly violated by Hanoi. We certainly wouldn't have the appetite to put troops back in, but certainly we would maintain military and economic assistance. And if it was major invasion, uh, we thought, obviously wrongly, but I think fairly, that the American people and the Senate and House would agree to resume bombing against this blatant violation. Thirdly, Moscow and Beijing had an interest in this settlement lasting. They could tell Hanoi, uh, you know, go for reconstruction and don't press the Americans now. Maybe in the long run you can get a better deal. Uh, and so that they would weigh in to try to constrain Hanoi. And finally, we agreed to provide major economic assistance to Hanoi, as well as our allies in the South and Laos and Cambodia, 
not as war reparations, which Hanoi wanted to call it, but in a self-interested objective of giving them an incentive to abide by the agreement. We felt there would be debates in the Politburo between those who wanted to try to push their advantage against the South right away and those who said, oh, my God, after all this destruction, let's, uh, let's take the economic deal. Uh, and also, we might get hit by the Americans if we try. Uh, and so let's abide by the agreement and try to win politically, at least for the near term. So for all these reasons, we thought we had achieved an agreement by a military settlement only and not overthrowing the government that allowed South Vietnam to determine its own political future in competition with the North, that we had these elements that would make it stand up, that we should not be committed to an indefinite uh, military involvement, and therefore that we should make this deal, uh, and that our honor would be preserved. Now, several of our assumptions didn't carry out. Uh, obviously, uh, the American Congress cut off not only any chance of bombing, but shamelessly uh, any real military aid and even economic aid to South Vietnam, which made any chance of their resisting the North uh, uh, impossible. Uh, and so the agreement did go down the tubes because of Hanoi's aggression, but it wasn't because of any cynical calculation. Uh, we felt it could hold up, and I think it might have well hold up if it wasn't for Watergate and the U.S. Congress. So in essence, uh, for Secretary Kissinger, but uh, for Watergate and the political uh, ramifications of that, any future incursions post uh, the treaty of uh, – post the agreement, I should say, not a treaty – post agreement of uh, January 1973 uh, by Hanoi would have been dealt with um, by American – or assisted by American air power in terms of South Vietnamese response. Yes, for the reasons I mentioned, that of course we knew about the opposition to the war, but we felt that if Hanoi was so blatant to send you know, countless divisions invading the South and breaking this agreement, that the American body politic, as I said, would support a bombing response. And indeed, we reassured President Chu and warned Hanoi uh, to, this, to this effect. And uh, I think there should have been support. Now, you could argue that this was a miscalculation. It obviously was, but it wasn't part of a, a cynical ploy by any means. Now, to switch to a different uh, place on the globe, uh, there is a discussion in the book about the near Middle East, um, particularly after 1972. Uh, why did uh, President Nixon and Secretary Kissinger not recommence uh, peace negotiations um, or dealings between Israel and Egypt and the other Arab countries, particularly after pre then President Nasser, uh, in essence, kicked the Russians out, the Soviets out of uh, Egypt in uh, 1972. Well, they didn't. In short, they didn't feel the time was ripe. Uh, whatever Nasser did, the fact is that. In the early 70s, before the Yom Kippur War in the, October 73, the Russians were dominant in that region, with the possible exception of Jordan and, as you say, Egypt. Uh, Russian arms and influence was quite dominant uh, in the Middle East, and the Arab countries sort of calculated 
that uh, with Russian backing, they could force concessions from Israel and from us. <clears throat> There's no question, <clears throat> excuse me, that Nixon and Kissinger wanted to make some moves in the Middle East. They, of course, had their hands full with Russia, China, and Vietnam, but and therefore this issue was essentially run by Secretary of State Rogers for the first few years. But they felt that the situation had to ripen before the calculations would lead to real negotiations. And that's exactly <clears throat> excuse me, what happened in the Yom Kippur War. Uh, initially, uh, when Egypt attacked Israel, uh, they made great advances uh, and frankly sobered up the Israelis about their immediate defenses. Now, the Israelis counterattacked and were gaining back uh, the territory and encircling the Egyptian army. Nixon and Kissinger saw an opportunity here. In fact, uh, there's an old Chinese saying that Nixon always used to like to quote, that the Chinese word for crisis is also the Chinese word for opportunity. So they seized on this. They, they saw that Israel, for the first time, had been uh, set back militarily, at least temporarily, and therefore might be somewhat sobered up about their predominance. And for the first time, the Arabs, particularly Egypt, had some sense of pride because they had pulled this off. On the other hand, Israel was coming back and was about to wipe out the Egyptian army, and we might have gotten back to the previous mentalities of shame on the Egyptian side, humiliation and uh, hubris on the Israeli side. So Kissinger moved, and I went with him to Moscow, and this is recounted in the book, uh, Kissinger and Kissinger, uh, to talk to the Russians about a ceasefire uh, and freezing the situation where Israelis might be willing to negotiate seriously because they had been somewhat uh, taken aback by the early successes of the Egyptian forces. And the Arabs had, and Egypt in particular, had some some pride in that they had so at least held the Israelis even. So we wanted to move quickly before Israel totally wiped out uh, the Egyptian army. Uh, all this time, of course, we clearly supported Israel as our friend and a democratic ally with military arms. Uh, and so that was the calculation. And the feeling was that before that, uh, the situation just wasn't ripe, either Israeli mentality, or Arab mentality, or the Soviet position versus ours. How did uh, Secretary Kissinger uh, find dealing with, on a personal level, um, Leonid Brezhnev? I think one of the interesting things in, in this book uh, is the, uh, the personal portraits of many leaders, Mao and Zhou and Lai and Sadat, uh, other Russians besides Brezhnev, uh, and, and so on. <clears throat> with respect to Brezhnev, uh, he was a total contrast with Mao and Zhou, of course. He struck us as sort of uh, the personality rather flamboyant and friendly, but also sort of tough like a union boss. Uh, and uh, on the one hand, Nixon and Kissinger felt that he genuinely wanted to stabilize our relationship and make an effort, but he already was somewhat declining in his power, so it wasn't clear whether we could uh, pull this off. But we got his attention with the China opening. Uh, and then 
uh, negotiations went forward, including the very successful summit in May of 1972. Now, the Russian and Brezhnev negotiating style was completely different from the Chinese. And indeed, in the book, uh, Kissinger and Kissinger, we talk about the negotiating styles of various uh, countries and leaders. In the Chinese case, they would take the long view with the self-confidence of the Middle Kingdom and having been number one in the world for about 5,000 years. Then they had a bad century, uh, late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, and with them, and this is Kissinger's preferred style, you could talk about what each side's basic goals were and what they needed for the longer term and then work back from that without uh, haggling like rug merchants because the latter style was the Soviet style. Namely, they would inflate their position in a traditional way so that you could fall back and make concessions and finally get to a deal. The trouble with that is you never knew what the bottom line was and it was exhausting and dangerous. So the Russians took that approach, but they had enough self-interest as did we to make deals that we did reach these agreements. Uh, and Brezhnev deserves uh, credit for, for what he did. In terms of diplomatic uh, tactics and skill, who would uh, Secretary Kissinger regard of all the people he had uh, interacted with in his years in office as being the best? No, that's an easy one. Joe and Live without any question. And the only potential rival to him in Kissinger's eyes was de Gaulle of France, but he had much less interaction with de Gaulle. Uh, and so uh, Joe and Live clearly uh, was the most impressive diplomat he ever met. And I would second that opinion. Of course, I haven't had the, the range and the heights uh, that Kissinger's enjoyed, but I've been in a lot of summits and a lot of other meetings with leaders, and Joe and I clearly stands out. And let me quickly explain why. First of all, let's not have any illusions. Not only was Mao ruthless, uh, Joe and I was ruthless. You don't stay in power like he did uh, without uh, having a certain toughness and hardness to you. So I'm not going to paint him as a saint. Uh, it is true, however, that he moderated many of Mao's excesses, was himself subjected to problems during the Cultural Revolution, that did limit some of the outrages of that period and other periods, uh, and so things would have been worse without him, and he was smart enough to always be number three, not number two, because number two always disappeared. Uh, but what was impressive about him was first his strategic and historical grasp which, of course, matched Kissinger's. And the Kissinger, Joe, and I conversations, I think, will go down in history as some of the most remarkable ever undertaken. And, and so he would put issues in, in this kind of context. Uh, he, secondly, he was extremely well-informed, not only strategically and historically, but on tactical. He never had uh, tactical issues. He never had a briefing book, which made Kissinger put away his briefing book and Nixon the same way because they didn't want to lose face. He could talk from, from memory. Uh, thirdly, he was elegant uh, in a Mandarin way, and he would firmly defend Chinese positions, but you always had the feeling that he was trying to understand your needs as well, and therefore you, you could have a real conversation with him, and he would be clear what they needed and what they didn't need. And for example, when we were negotiating the Shanghai communique with him, there's one point where we said, hey, if you do this for us, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make a concession to you. And he said, oh, no, look, if you can persuade me that I should do this, 
uh, you don't need to compensate me. I'll, I'll do it anyway. So uh, he had a certain charm that way. Uh, charm is another element. And charisma, that often overused word, certainly he had all that. Uh, he was very deft in his gestures. One of our secretaries and one of the trips got sick. He sent over his own personal doctor. Uh, I'll give you one other example of, of the charm, which contributes because the Chinese are masters at this, of making you feel they're your friends and being great hosts and husbands, so you have some sense of obligation to them. Uh, but on one trip we went, we went nine trips uh, during the 70s to China. I was on all of them with Kissinger. And on one of them in the early 70s, we were wrapping up the final day uh, but what had happened the previous days, we were staying in a, the guest house in the Chinese diplomatic compound, and Kissinger and I would walk around uh, to talk tactics in the gardens and, and the paths of the compound because we knew we were being bugged in the guest house. And every time we came up to a certain bridge, uh, a soldier or a policeman would pop up and stop us from going over that particular bridge, and we were really puzzled about this. We discussed it in the guest house, knowing we'd be overheard, probably. Uh, anyway, to jump forward to the final night, after they concluded their talks, uh, Joe and I did the unprecedented diplomatic move of offering to walk Kissinger back to his guest house. And guess what Rudy took? He took us over that bridge. He didn't say a word about anything, but he was uh, subtly sending us some, some gestures. So... That gives you a sense of the of the person. Again, he was tough and ruthless, but as a diplomat, for all the reasons I mentioned, uh, he was absolutely superb. Did uh, Secretary Kissinger ever express to you any personal qualms about dealing in particular with Mao, given the fact that uh, directly or indirectly, uh, I suppose he was known to some extent then, although obviously not as much as subsequently, that Mao was responsible for the deaths of millions of people. Yeah, let's be let's be honest here. Uh, there's three leading contenders for the worst people in terms of deaths uh, in the 20th century: uh, Stalin, Hitler, and Mao. I'm not about to rank them in order of likability, but uh, the fact is, if you take indirect deaths through starvation and other means, and not just direct uh, Holocaust-type deaths. Uh, Mao probably gets the gold medal in, in that sense. I'm not saying he's worse than Hitler. I don't think he was by any means, but uh, he certainly was uh, not Thomas Jefferson, to say the least. So we knew that, of course. As you mentioned, we didn't fully know the extent of the Great Leap Forward, the famines, and even the Cultural Revolution, which was still going on, although over its major phase. Uh, but we also knew there was greatly in the American interest to open up. So I wouldn't say Kissinger expressed qualms about what we were doing, but he was not naive. And, of course, even though his reputation is not as a great human rights crusader, the fact is he lost almost 20 members of his own family in the Holocaust. And to say that he doesn't worry about human rights is nuts. He does care about it, but he feels it's got to be part of a larger agenda with countries and often can be done more effectively privately. I don't always agree with him on this issue, and we've had debates. Uh, but in this case, one had to hold one's nose for greater, the greater good. American 
national interest, stability in the world in a time of nuclear weapons and great danger, uh, and have to deal with someone who is unattractive. This is a classic dilemma in American foreign policy where we want to express our ideals, and we should, but we often have overriding security, economic, and other interests which have to take precedent, at least temporarily. That's true even as we speak today in dealing with China, where it's an egregious human rights situation, and we should raise it more than Trump has been doing. But the fact is we have major economic and security and diplomatic interests, and while human rights is part of our agenda, it can't dominate it. This was even truer in the early 1970s. So, yes, we didn't particularly like the people we were dealing with, uh, but we also felt we had to do it for the reasons I've mentioned. At the end of the book, you um, uh, cogently describe what you felt were the effects of uh, Secretary Kissinger's eight years in office in terms of improving the morale of the American people. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, yes. Uh, it's hard to remember today what was happening in the late 60s and uh, early 70s. We're in great turmoil today, but anybody who lived, as I did, through the late 60s, remember a period that was even worse. Uh, we had three assassinations. We had race riots. We had an incredible divisionists over the Vietnam War. <clears throat> we had cultural upheaval. Uh, so we had that, and then things were looking better uh, in the early years of the Nixon administration with the opening of China, detente with the Russians, Middle East diplomacy, and with all its controversy, at least getting the war behind us, we felt with honor, our critics felt not so much. Uh, so things were looking up, and then we got hit by Watergate, and tremendous cynicism about the president and the presidency, Reassertion by Congress of its prerogatives and hamstringing foreign policy uh, in many ways, and not only the weariness of the long war, but now total disillusionment with the president who was forced out of office. So you put all that together, and here we were back in a morale. We'd gotten out of the morale problem of Vietnam by the China and Russian and diplomatic achievements in many ways, but now we were threatening to backslide. Uh, in 1974 and 5 because of Watergate. I think if I had to pick one of Kissinger's greatest achievements, it would not be so much, although the major ones, uh, the opening of China, the talk with the Russians, Middle East shuttle, Southern African diplomacy, which he did under Ford, uh, and ending the Vietnam War, I would say holding this country together uh, under the Ford administration. Now, Ford deserves great credit for taking the courage to pardon Nixon and losing his own re-election as a result. But Nixon, uh, Kissinger, who now, of course, is controversial, at the time was the single most admired person in the United States and perhaps in the world. And he was, you know, on the cover of Time. He was a person who held this country together in terms of credibility and so on. He was untainted by Watergate. And he continued significant diplomatic uh, achievements. Uh, and so I think uh, he was responsible for the nation, along with President Ford, for not falling into a really despondent uh, morale situation. Ambassador Lord, if you wanted people to take one thing away from this book, what would it be? The need for strategic approach 
and the kind of qualities that I think Nixon and Kissinger, with all their faults, I'm not going to paint them as saints, but the need in foreign policy to have <clears throat> the kind of approach rooted in American self-interest, but with a strategic and historical context, as opposed to short-term tactical moves, even less selfish moves, uh, phony victories, uh, narcissistic uh, endeavors, uh, blaming your predecessors all the time. Uh, and so I'm, of course, referring to the current situation, but I would argue that compared to all succeeding generations, and I'm obviously biased, and they've had some great successes as well, there's never been an approach this thoughtful and strategic in recent American history. So that would be the major lesson I would get across uh, to the readers. I would like to thank you very much, Ambassador Winston Lord, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Ambassador Lord. Thank you. I enjoyed it.